0: All right, it might be a little early for this illustration, but I couldn't think of a better one. So um, you all, pro- well, some of you may know me and you may know that I love Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday, I guess if you don't count the Jesus holidays, okay? But it's, it's my favorite, like, just cultural kind of thing that we do because uh, who doesn't like to eat a ton of food and enjoy a day of uh, hanging out with people and watching football or whatever else we do? And I love Thanksgiving. I think it, even though it's not a, a mandated you know, biblical holiday in any regard, it's a sweet thing for us to do uh, as we culturally pivot to a, a day, a year, and really as Christians, we know there should be more than a day, a year where we do this, but to actually stop for a day and thank the Lord, as Christians at least, we thank the Lord for how he's cared for us in the last year, uh, how he's provided for us, how he has given us so much grace throughout the, the year to carry us through. And I think that that's a, a beautiful thing that we do, and I'm grateful for that day, actually. And and yet what's really perplexing about all that, when you think about Thanksgiving Day, and I know that you don't want to... Th- I, I want to think about that. You probably don't want to think about that far into the fall and what comes after that with winter. But I love winter, so I'm, I'm excited for it. But what's crazy about Thanksgiving is how immediately after Thanksgiving, you you get the turkey in the Ziploc bag, you throw it in the fridge for the next two weeks for leftovers, and immediately we turn as a culture, as a people, as a nation, to what is called Black Friday. And it's just like this amazing and crazy contrast of things. The day we give thanks turns immediately into the day where we covet so, so hard. <laughs> it's like, what is, there's, a, there's like this obvious disconnect in this. Um, now, again, I'm not against a deal, right? I think Black Friday's awesome for the deals. We're Midwesterners. Most of us probably grew up in the Midwest. We brag about how little money we spend on things. That's just kind of the ethos of the Midwest. And uh, so I'm all about the deal. I'm not ripping on anybody who does Black Friday shopping at all, um, but I think it's really bizarre how it's almost whiplash-producing how quickly we turn from I'm so grateful for everything God's given me to I just want all this stuff. <coughs> Excuse me, and so um, it's just crazy how we go from from that to that like instantly. <coughs> um, so what we do is we go from Thanksgiving to Black Friday where we see people trampling each other and beating each other up to get a TV or some toy that's gonna be broken by the end of Christmas Day. And, and again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't participate in getting the deals. But we shouldn't participate in the psychotic nature of it, right? Um, we shouldn't participate in the violence that may flow, wanna flow out of us as we're fighting crowds. And with the, uh, the invention of the internet, it's definitely helped keep that at bay because people can shop online, which is probably good for all of us. Um, but, but I, I'm just so reminded in that of, of the need of the human heart for gratitude, <clears throat> for being thankful to God, not just one day a year, but all the time, every day. The Bible's clear on that. The Psalms over and over again tell us to be thankful. The New Testament tells us that we are to be thankful and give thanks to the Lord. And I think that that is just very clearly what's being taught again in Psalm 105. It begins with that call. If you look at the first six words of Psalm 105, it says, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. (coughs) I got a catch in my throat. Sorry about that. Um, This Psalm is drawing us in to gratitude. It's drawing us into a a demeanor of thankfulness. And everything in this psalm is meant to flow out of gratitude to God. That's really what it is. And this is one of the psalms in the Bible that is um, a historical psalm. So what it does is it's going to lay out the, the historical work of God that should then produce in us thanksgiving, and gratitude. It is meant to show us what God has done for his people in history and then produce that, produce in us thankfulness because of that. That's what this psalm is here to do. So if I could summarize this whole psalm in one sentence, it would be, it'd be something like this. Um, the work of God for us through Jesus produces gratitude and gratitude produces worship that's that's where it is <clears throat> these bookends of the of this psalm begins with give thanks to the lord and ends with praise the lord those are the those are the final words and the first and final words of this psalm it is give thanks to the lord and then it ends with praise the lord gratitude produces in us worship and and uh, And we worship God because of all that he's done for us. So that's the theme. That's the overview. But let's look at the specifics. The first six verses of this psalm, the first paragraph or so, uh, walks us through how the heart that is grateful to God should respond to him in worship. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples sing to him sing praises to him tell of all his wondrous works glory in his holy name let the hearts of those who seek the lord rejoice seek the lord and his strength seek his presence continually remember the wondrous works that he has done his miracles and the judgments he uttered O offspring of abraham his servant children of jacob his chosen ones. The, these first six verses, I think are, it's a string of responses to God that flow, I think, out of gratitude. It starts with giving thanks and the things that we then see it calling us to are things that would, would happen as we are thankful people. Right, let's just look at the, the summary of these things. Give thanks, call upon his name make him known, sing to him, tell about him, glory in him, let your hearts rejoice in him, seek him, remember all that he has done. All of those things come through us as we are grateful to God. Now, this is a pretty long psalm. It's 45 verses. So we're we're going to have to do a little bit of a quick flyover of some of this psalm. But the, the remainder of the psalm really breaks down five categories of how God has worked historically through uh, his, his grace in his people's lives, which is what should, as we look back on these things, produce gratitude. So he's going to walk us through the psalmist, whoever wrote this psalm, it's not named who wrote it, but whoever wrote it is reminding our hearts again of all that God has done and is showing us at least five kind of kind of big moments in biblical history of what God did for his people. These are predominantly focused on the books of Moses. In the first five books of your Bible were written by Moses. So uh, most of the things that this psalm focuses on, focus on Genesis and then Exodus. And then it gets into just to the very beginning of Joshua kind of, and the end of Moses' life. And that's where this psalm wraps up. So obviously we know that God has done far more than just these things, but this is sort of the the pinnacle of what he did in the times of Moses. So let's look at each of these. And again, we're going to take a little bit of time on each, but um, we don't have a ton of time to emphasize all of it. So if you look at verse seven through 15, that's the first kind of big reminder of what God has done for his people. It says, he is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as a portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number and of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Okay, so this, this first category of what God did for his people in history is that the Lord made and keeps a covenant with his people through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and moving forward. This this section of the psalm really just reminds us that God chose to save a people, and he did that through a family, the family of Abraham, and Isaac, his son, carried that, that torch, and Jacob, Isaac's son, carried that torch, and on and on. So what this is emphasizing is really the faithfulness of God towards us throughout the generations that God started this whole thing with Abraham, but he carries in faithfulness, eternally in faithfulness throughout the generations of his people. Now, we're going to swing back to why that matters as we wrap this all up, but let's just land it there for now. Let's look at the second thing that we're reminded of. So first, God makes a covenant with his people, okay? And we'll talk about why that matters, but Look at the second thing we're reminded of, verse 16 through 23. It says, When he had summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel, which is another name for Jacob, came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. So this is a summary. If if the first section of this uh, Abrahamic covenant is a summary of Genesis, really chapters 12 through 36, the, what we just read is a summary of Genesis 37 through 50. So if you're tracking there, this psalmist just uh, basically summarizes in two paragraphs roughly the whole of Genesis, uh, pretty much, up, up to, from, at least starting in chapter 12. Um, but here we're reminded of how the Lord provided for his people during a famine. And that's the story of Joseph, right? You have Jacob who was one of the the patriarchs of Israel, one of the the three that is mentioned in the covenant passage. And here you have him having all these kids, but Joseph was his favorite kid, by far. Favoritism all the way to the max. Very unhealthy family, if you actually read the story. Um, But Joseph was, because of the favoritism his father showed him, and because he was sort of a, a brat, you know, let's be honest, he, he didn't do himself any favors, but his brothers really hated him, and his brothers let bitterness just grow to a point of, of really the extreme of wanting to take him and kill him, and so they planned to kill Joseph, and yet Joseph wasn't killed. He was actually sold by his brothers into slavery, which isn't better, by the way, okay? So, I mean, it's not like they, they did him a solid, but God, but here's the point. God is doing something here, I think there's two things that this passage really highlights, which is fascinating. And it's really 16 and 17, the verses that that mention this. Um, Verse 16 says, When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. Now, who is he? Well, that's obviously in context God who we're talking about. So when God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. The first thing to note here is that the Bible says, and this stopped me in my tracks as I was reading it this week, is God summoned the famine that happened to his people in Israel. Now, that's interesting because, I mean, most of the time we would attribute a, a famine with a natural disaster, right? Some a drought, some sort of a massive storm that wipes out the crops, Famine, of course, is when you don't have enough food, in case you're not familiar with that word. But uh, this is where ultimately, yeah, the the drought or some other disaster may have happened. And yet, the psalmist doesn't back away from the fact that God is actually the one in control of this. I think that's interesting because I I think a lot of us are afraid to say that God brings hard things into our lives. But that's literally what it's saying here, that God summoned this famine. So now how do we wrestle with that? Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things to consider. We don't have all the time in the world, but I, but I think what's interesting is that while we, we kind of back away from that, I think probably because we want to protect God's reputation um, and we almost would rather believe that God is some helpless bystander in, when bad things happen but what the Bible teaches is that God is actually the one who's actively working in this. The Bible does teach us that God never tempts us with sin. But it doesn't ever teach that God doesn't send negative things our way. And certainly God uses the na- natural world as well as the spiritual world to accomplish his purposes. But God does allow hard things. And I, he, he does, but he does it for a purpose, and the purpose is actually interesting here. It's in verse 17. While he had summoned a famine on the land, he had, past tense, sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So while God is summoning a famine, he's also sending a rescuer. He's sending the person who would ultimately be in the position to save his people. God is working on both ends. He's allowing hard things to come. He's also sending help. He's doing both of these things. He's sovereign and he's working in all these things. And we, we don't just see this in this one text. We see it all over the Bible, but particularly Romans 8, 28, which tells us that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So what that means is that everything that happens to us is used by God for good. All things can mean bad things. In fact, it absolutely means bad things in the context of that passage. And and yet God takes those things and uses them for good. Now the question is, what is the good that God is doing with all those bad things? Well, it doesn't, doesn't leave us to guess. It tells us in 8, 829 that the good that God is doing through the hard things in our lives, in fact, through all things, good and bad, from our perspective, the good that he's doing is he's making us more like Jesus. He's conforming us to the image of his son. And I think if we, while it doesn't necessarily make the suffering easier in the moment necessarily, right? Suffering is suffering. It's hard. We don't have to enjoy it. We can, I think we can bear it under, the, under God's strength because we know that God is using it for a purpose. He's using it for the purpose of making us more like Jesus. And I, I, I truly believe this, that we may get glimpses of that in our life, but we are not going to see the fullness of that until God uh, brings us to himself and Maybe we'll graciously let us see how that all worked. I'm, all, I'm just always reminded of, of this one quote from John Piper where he, he says that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. And I think that's just so helpful and right. But God is doing all of these things on both ends. He's, he may be bringing hard things to us, but he's also giving us his son to help us. And Joseph is, serves as a type of Christ. It's very clear when you read the scriptures that that is what's happening. Joseph is a forerunner or a shadow of what Christ would ultimately do for us. So we see that we can give thanks to God because he provides for us in in difficult moments. He did that in history through this famine. He does it today. Okay, let's look at the third one. 24 to 38, the Lord made his people very fruitful and he made them stronger than their foes. Foes are referring to the Egyptians in this context. He turned their hearts, the Egyptians' hearts, to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, uh, his servant, and Aaron whom he had chosen they performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark, but they did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees, shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of the ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. He brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. This section of the psalm is recording the history of Exodus chapters 1 to 13, which is telling us about how the Lord saved his people from slavery to the Egyptians. That God sent Moses and Aaron. And they performed all these mighty works through God's power. They brought, you, you probably, as we read this, you heard about a sampling of the plagues that were brought upon Egypt. And most of you are probably familiar with that story. Um, you either watched it in the Ten Commandments movie, or Prince of Egypt was the one that came out when I was a kid, uh, the cartoon version. Uh, but, but we all kind of have this concept of that story of God rescuing his people from Egypt. And this, this passage is just recounting how God did that. Remember, it's a historical psalm, so it's walking us through the, the work of God. But what it's showing us is that God was merciful and gracious to work his miracles in rescuing his people and saving them from slavery. <coughs> All right. Fourthly, or fifth, uh, yeah, fourthly. 39 to 42. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So here we see how the Lord cared for his people as they escape from Egypt and are delivered from their slavery, they're brought into the desert and they are brought into a period of rebellion and wandering for 40 years. But these few verses remind us of how God, even in their rebellion and their wandering through the desert, provided for them and cared for them. He brought them food to eat. He gave them water in the desert, miraculously from rocks. He gave them shelter with this pillar of cloud and fire that kept them shaded and, and warm at night. He provided through all of these things for them in the desert. And then now there's one more thing to look at before we kind of land the plane here. Uh, verse 43 to 45. So he brought his people out with joy. His chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. So this final section tells us that the Lord gives his people a a home to possess. This is recording really the summary of the book of Joshua maybe the very tail end of Moses' life as well. But um, this is a summary of how God brought them out of Egypt through 40 years of wandering in the desert to ultimately giving them a home, which he had promised to Abraham. And he presents them with this perfect, beautiful home that they could dwell in. They didn't have to toil with with the fields. They didn't have to plant the fruit trees. Everything was there for them to enjoy. Okay, so that's the psalm, right? That's the sampling of the five or so big moments of God's work for them. But remember that this whole thing is meant to produce in us gratitude and ultimately gratitude leads us into worship. And if this sampling in, of God's work for his people through Genesis, Exodus, and all the way up into Joshua it is a good thing for us to remember Yes, how much more do we have to be thankful for? We live in a point in history where we can look back on far more of what God has done. And everything that God did in the Old Testament culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. We know from the book of Hebrews chapter 10 that, that all of the Old Testament is a shadow, but Christ is the substance. The, the Old Testament points us to what God Yes, did historically, I'm not arguing that this, this all happened, but it all happened for the purpose of pointing us to, a, to an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And so we see the shadows here of what Christ would accomplish for us. As God made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis, so in Jesus, he makes a new and better covenant by his own blood shed on the cross. This is what Jesus says at the institution of the Lord's Supper just before his crucifixion. He says he makes a new covenant with you by my blood. He makes a covenant with us that will eternally carry us forever in himself. That Jesus is the the, the top of the pyramid of, of all the covenants that God has made. He's the capstone. He's the one that completes it all. So yes, God made a covenant with Abraham and continued to carry that through Jacob Uh, and, and then all the way through his people. But Jesus produces a new and better covenant by his own blood, not by the blood of animals like the Old Testament people. We also see that God provided for his people in a famine by sending Joseph into Egypt to provide food for his people through the wisdom God gave him. But we see even better in Jesus that he provides all that we need in life because he is the bread of life, that whoever comes to him will never hunger and whoever believes in him will never thirst. Jesus is the true and better provider for us in the famine of our spiritual deserts. We also see that God delivered his people from slavery to the Egyptians. But in Jesus, we are saved not just from physical slavery, but from the ultimate slavery to sin and our judgment that we rightly deserve in hell. God rescues us from that through his son as we trust and believe in him. As God cared for his people in their desert wanderings for 40 years, so Jesus cares for us in our dark and desert moments. He comes to us with sufficient grace in our moments of darkness and despair. And I'm reminded, I've been reading through Second Corinthians just in my own reading time and devotional time. And I've read this book many times, but I'm just struck in the very first chapter of what Paul says about his own experience in this regard. He says, I, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired, of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. And on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul Paul and his friends who served in ministry alongside him knew what the darkness and despair of life could really look like. And and many of us know that too. And yet Paul pivots his heart away from despair to hope because God is the one who raises the dead and God is the one who will carry him through whatever God calls him to. And that is true of Paul, but it's also true of me and it's true of you as we follow Christ. We also see finally that God gives his people a land to dwell in. And yet what we need to understand is that Jesus gives us what that land actually points to, which is an eternal home in the new heavens and the new earth when he brings in his kingdom. And we get to be an inheritor of that because we're a part of his people. In light of all of that, the things that God has done for us in Christ, how could we not express our gratitude to him? That's the point, right? We give thanks to the Lord and we praise the Lord because when we look back at what God has done to accomplish all of our salvation and provide for all of our needs and all the things, we have nothing else to do except be thankful. And again, I'm reminded of this story in Jesus' life in Luke 17 um, where there's these 10 lepers, men with leprosy, that come to Jesus. And they're all outcast from society because of the skin disease that they have. And Jesus heals all of them. He just speaks and says, as you go, go to the priest, show yourself to the priest, fulfill the, the, the requirements of you and, and then go your way. And they all do. But what we're told in the passage in, in Luke 17, 11 to 19 is that one of these 10 came back to Jesus, having seen that he was made well. And this man, we're told specifically, was a Samaritan. He wasn't one of the Jewish members of this group of 10. He was a Gentile who shouldn't have really had the heart softened the way that he did, but he he did and he comes back and he falls at Jesus' feet in gratitude, thanking him for what he's done. And Jesus says to him something amazing. He says, your faith has made you well. Now that phrase made you well could be translated just as equally. This is a translation choice in the the people taking it from Greek to English. They chose to translate it as made you well, but it, it has the same meaning as being translated, your faith has saved you. Same word. Which I think is actually better in that context to help us understand what Jesus is getting at. Because he's not saying that the other 10 or the other nine, rather, weren't made well. They were all healed. It wasn't like Jesus is going, oh, you didn't come back to thank me. Well, you got leprosy again. He let all of them stay healed. They were all made well. But this one, this one Samaritan who did come back, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. It's not that his faith is, was, the, was the key to his physical healing. God just did that graciously through Christ. But it was his faith that actually changed his heart. And so he, as he comes back to Jesus in gratitude, the gratitude is an overflow of the fact that his that Jesus not only healed his body of leprosy, but really healed his soul of the leprosy of sin. And that brought him back to Christ in worship. It was because he knew the saving grace of Christ through faith that brought him to gratitude. And we don't know the background of all the other guys, whether they came around at one point, or we don't, we're not given that detail. But we know that this one, at least, saw the reality that was deeper than just the physical healing he needed to the spiritual healing he needed by faith. But that highlights, that emphasizes, that that illustrates for us why gratitude leads to worship. When we think about what God has done to save us, we have no other response but to worship him, no other proper response. Gratitude produces worship. And I, and I hope uh, and pray in my own life that that is true in me, that I would not be complacent with the grace of God, but see the grace of God in my life as a, as a conduit to bring me into worship. And I hope that's true of you as well. Let me pray. Father, we, we thank you. And we are just grateful that you have not only worked so beautifully and powerfully in your people throughout history, but that you actually work powerfully and beautifully through your son Jesus in our lives too. Would you help us, Lord, not to just see this as a historical lesson to be learned of what you've done, but to see it as a prototype of what you've accomplished in Christ for us. And would you then take us and take our hearts and let us respond to you in joy and calling upon you and seeking you and remembering all you've done. We pray you'd help us in that now. By your spirit, we pray. Amen.